As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. If we never, ever have had guests bring in treats for us, and now this is two days in a row. No kidding. Yeah, yeah wow. this is incredible. We're this never happens. <laughs> this is now two days in a row of guests bringing in sweets for us. Oh, that's awesome. That's rule. Which Thank is you so make, much. Which makes us very popular in our row because then we'll share them with all of our uh, colleagues. And thank very you so nice. much. Oh, this is great. Oh, I can't wait. Definitely having one of these. Does this bring you guys back to Hong Kong in a way? Yes. <laughs> yes. I remember every year. I actually kind of miss it, like all the Zodiac theme things every year. Like you would walk around the streets and there'd be all the pastries and things, but also the little gold statues in like the shape of a dog or a bear, not a bear, a pig or like a dragon and stuff. I miss that. We don't get that so much oh, here. Joe, do you know what yeah, your you Zodiac animal is in China? Uh, there's headphones there, but you won't. I used to know. Sure. Monkey. Monkey? Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that makes 1980s sense. 1980s monkey. Monkey and Tracy. Uh, I'm a boar. Oh. I'm very lucky. Very yes. Very I am what very, are you? I'm a rabbit. So this a past rabbit. year was, was my year. Oh, oh nice. wow. Yeah. Did you have a good year? I think so. I got <laughs> on the other on, on Yeah, right. It has, it, has, it has to be a good year. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Yeah, I just popped up out of nowhere, but I'm here too. Parmen, what Chinese zodiac animal are you? The horse. Oh, oh. the horse. horse is a good one too. I did a deadlift. One, two, <laughs> two three. three. Hegemony. Hegemony. Okay, go. Hegemony. Barges. This is an after-school special, except... I've decided I'm going to base my entire personality going forward on campaigning for a strategic pork reserve in the U.S. Where's the best squid <laughs> ink pasta? These are the, the important questions. Is it robots taking over the world? No, I think that, like, in a couple of years, the AI will do a really good job of making the Odd Lots podcast. <laughs> and people will say, I don't really need to listen to Joe and Tracy anymore we do have cha-ching <laughs> the perfect guest welcome to lots more where we catch up with friends about what's going on right now because even when odd lots is over there's always lots more and we really do have the perfect guest i'm always sort of skeptical of like like when people talk about the end of the dollar it sort of seems like crank stuff to me we have had this conversation <laughs> so many times. And yes, a lot of the people who like having conversations about the end of dollar dominance, they are crank adjacent. Many of them, <laughs> many of them are firmly uh, in crank territory. But I do think it is true if you look at what's happening in certain parts of the financial system, like there are attempts being made, yeah. even if they're not officially called we are trying to move away from the dollar. They are called things like, well, we want a more resilient financial system or we want one where we are not as tied or as reliant on Exposed, what's happening to yeah. the dollar. Exposed. Exactly right. So the efforts 
are there. They are underway. Does it mean that things are going to change in the next like year? Absolutely not. I don't think so. But I don't think they can be disregarded in total. Well, in studio with us, we have someone who is definitely not a crank or crank adjacent <laughs> former guest, Zoe Liu. Uh, you have a great piece. China wants to ditch the dollar in Noema magazine. And, you know, this is, of course, we've done episodes on China and the dollar, whether they want to de-dollarize, et cetera. I, I actually find it kind of compelling. Maybe there's something going on here. Well, first of all, I do not get to choose the title. <laughs> um, Spoken I, like a true journalist. All, all journalists have had this. Although no, I've generally been pretty involved in title. Making. It's it's much less of a thing than it used to be. If you were working on a newspaper for many many years, it was the sub editors who would choose the yeah. headline. I'm sorry, Zoe. We've totally interrupted you and hijacked the conversation. <laughs> to talk about journalism. No, yeah. no, no. I actually do appreciate your explaining of this because sometimes I get people emailing me saying that, well, the title of your article, you are saying that China is trying to ditch the dollar, but in reality, when we finished reading our article, it turned out that you are not saying that China is going to ditch the dollar. The bottom line of my argument. Is that for there are economic and geopolitical reasons for countries like China to try to reduce its exposure to the dollar-based system? And the reason I'm saying this is because just think about it. You can imagine China as the in the factory of the world, and you are buying a lot of commodities using one currency, and you are trying to sell your commodities. Uh, in the same currency. This is the story of China's rise. This is how China accumulated at one point 4 trillion foreign exchange reserves denominated in dollar. But every time when Chinese exporters, importers doing a transaction, it has to go through the entire banking system, which is not denominated in the Chinese currency. This is what why the Chinese financiers are grumping about, grumpy mm. about, right? They are saying that, well, you know, we are the largest trading partner with more than 120 countries in the world, and yet our currency is very minimum. Huh. How much of the urge to maybe uh, diversify a little bit comes from waning economic growth? And I'm very conscious that we are recording this in a week. You know, we are here on January 25th. It has been a terrible week for both the Chinese economy and its financial assets. There's been a lot of ink spilt about the crash in Chinese stocks. I think the CSI 300 index is down something like 40% over the past three years. There's a lot of conversation about structural weakness in China's economy at the moment. How much of this urge to maybe de-dollarize is too strong a word, but sort of diversify currency options mm. is part of this economic evolution? That makes a lot of sense, Tracy. In fact, if we go back all the way to the early 2000s, that was actually the very first time when the Chinese officials were talking about, seriously talking about diversifying their foreign exchange reserve holdings. So from that time on, with the growing of the Chinese foreign exchange reserve accumulation, the conversation has been focused has has been focused on how to reduce the opportunity cost of investing all the foreign exchange asset in in U.S. Treasuries. But things started to change around two thousand after two thousand fourteen. Part of the reason was because of the West's threatening of kicking Russia off the SWIFT system. Mm. Now, at that time, the West did not go with the nuclear option with Russia. 
but it did sort of provide it. It did provide a wake-up call for President Putin as well as the Chinese. And one year later, it was around 2015 that was the launch of CIPS, China's uh, cross-border interbank payment system. And、uh, at that time, again, the idea was to facilitate broader use of internet、uh, of、uh, of the RMB in the international system.、Uh, but then, systematically, people start to realize, well, this can be a a hedge or a insurance policy. Then things really started to get worse from Chinese perspective around 2018, with the escalation of U.S.-China trade war during the、uh, Trump administration, and you have. Uh, Chinese financial regulators,、uh, even the people, the vice chairman of、uh, China's Securities Regulatory Commission, Fang Xinhai, he came out and saying that well, we should be prepared for the so-called forced decoupling, meaning China was being kicked out of the U.S.-led global financial system. And obviously, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and President Putin's war against Ukraine, and the freeze of Russian reserves and、uh, kicking out of, kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system, this is really the moment、right. where China. Realized, you know, th- we could be the next Russia. And by the way, China is not the only country in the world facing that kind of insecurity. You have countries like Saudi Arabia started to worry. And at one point, there was even floating the idea that Saudi Arabia was considering moving their the trading of or shifting part of the transactions of oil or denominating the oil price pricing in the Remembi. So this is where I think a lot of things have been under underestimated. I'm glad you brought up oil. Actually, I should mention、uh, we, we talked to、uh, Zoe last year. I think it was maybe last August. She is the author of Sovereign Funds: How the CPC Finances Its Global Ambitions. She's the Maurice R. Greenberg Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Perfect guest, literally. But actually, I'm glad you brought up oil because I thought one of the most fascinating aspects of your piece on China and the dollar, and I had never seen anyone put this together, which is that. If China is going to be, I don't know if it's a, a dominant provider of rare earth metals, and we、mm. talk about this all the time in the context of like batteries and clean tech and certain needs for high tech, etc. And there's you know this talk about dependence on China for all these things. If China is going to be, I don't know, maybe the Saudi Arabia of some of these commodities, then this is an opportunity to create brand new markets. That aren't do not from day one. You know, it's like Saudi it's Arabia. It's like a bulkhead.、Right? Yeah, yeah. Like Saudi Arabia is like okay, maybe after all these years, maybe it'll d- d- trade a little bit more oil and some other currency. But China could create a new market for these and not and have it be undollarized from day one. I think that is an excellent point to to summarize the my my argument. And I wish you were my editor. <laughs> But,、uh, <laughs> well, no, your editor did a great job. It's right up at the yes, top, and I was like, oh, this、so. is <laughs> very much so. So、uh, this is how I think about the relationship between energy and finance.、Yeah. Right? You know, right now we are living through a moment of the so-called energy transition, but this is actually not the very first time we live. The human society lived through this. You know, from fire to coal、mm-hmm. to oil. Yeah. And the next thing could be renewable or clean energy. Could be. A variety of renewable resources or clean energy sources, and the danger of this is that when we move from a oil-dominated global economy, which is about eighty percent of the global economy now is、uh, fueled by oil,、mm. right? So, oil is one commodity that has one single market. It does not matter where you are trading it, whether you are in Texas, you are in Dubai, you are in、uh, Singapore, Shanghai, or、uh, London. At least for most of the time. There is 
only one global oil market. Price change here, it moves over there. But renewables is totally different because it's a very much decentralized and distributed system. And even for natural gas, it's the same thing, right? There is no single global market for natural gas. So from this perspective, this decentralized and fragmented uh, market provide opportunity for the emergence of a different trading hub, different trading system, and different pricing mechanism. And this is where China see uh, energy transition as an opportunity to reduce their dependence on the dollar system. And China actually have, ha, ha, has the market power in this regards because it is already one of, it is the, the world's largest importer of a lot of commodities. And it also dominates a lot of the processing capacity for critical minerals. So from that perspective, you see China has access to the resources, has the processing capacity. They also have the um, manufacturing capacity in the transition to renewables. Yeah, I didn't realize this. So I, I knew China had rare earth capacity, but I didn't realize it also has the tungsten capital of the world in um, yeah, I didn't realize in Ga- the- Ganzhou. Am I pronouncing that right? Very right. In Ganzhou. And it's funny because I've been to Ganzhou on my way to Guilin. But no this, kidding. Yeah, but this was like, I mean, it must have been like 2004 or something when my mother was working in Beijing. And, I, you know, I was at university at the time and rare earth metals were not on my mind. So the importance of that particular city uh, flew over my head at that time. But tungsten capital of the world, as you point out. The example that you pointed out is very important, Tracy, because Ganzhou is the is the location where you I cannot believe you actually have been there because I have <laughs> never been there. Many tourists would not even no, have been there. No, it was a way stop on the way to Guilin. And I remember I've had a lot of adventures in getting lost in foreign places. But this was one of the places where we genu- genuinely got lost because we were only there for a night. And we really struggled to find a restaurant to eat in. And no one back then spoke English. And, you know, we didn't have translator apps and things like that. So I remember we went to a restaurant and we ordered something. And I think we got back. I think we thought we were ordering like chicken or beef. And we got, I'm pretty sure it was pan fried scorpions in the end. This was one of my like only like. I would eat that. No, no. I would. Uh, but anyway, it w- it was not a tourist destination, <laughs> as you point out. It was really a way stop um, on the way to Guilin, which is definitely a tourist destination and is beautiful. Very much so. But uh, Ganzhou is important in the sense that it it, it has uh, China's second rare rare uh, rare metals uh, exchange mechanism, and the whole idea behind setting up this rare mineral exchange mechanism has been to increase the pricing power of the renminbi in a lot of these critical minerals very much relevant for the energy transition and china not only have one it has china not only has one but it has another one in neimanggu can Baoku. i get oh sorry uh, no it's i was just pointing out in the city, the name of the city i believe it's the baotou rare earth mineral and just a small segue about rare earth this is another aspect of why chinese financiers have been grumpy they are saying that well you know china is the largest rare earth uh, mineral exporting country in the world for a long period of time but 
they have been exporting rare earth at an extremely cheap price. Hmm. The idea is you sell rare earth. It's a very important mineral, but you sell it dirt cheap. Huh. In Chinese word, rare earth is called xitu. It's like rare earth. Earth means tu. Tu is like literally it means dirt. So you are selling something oh. precious at the price of dirt. So th- this huh. is why they are really interested in sort of increasing the pricing power of their minbi. Wait, huh. but is that is that just to try to get market share? Because I think about rare earths and I think finite resources. Uh, a lot of people are struggling to get them or reliable access to them. Why would you sell it cheap? Uh, that is an excellent question. For a long period of time, rare earth as a metal, it does, it didn't have a lot of uh, applications mm-hmm. in the transition to renewables. Like if we were having this conversation back in, let's say, two thousand seven, the market is definitely very different from what we are seeing today. So from that perspective, yes, having market share is important, but the the the, the problem is the demand. Is not necessarily as high as it is today. Oh, I see. Okay, so a lot of the discussion around the shortage of rare earth metals is still very hypothetical. Very much so. Okay. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, and we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg. We're really excited about Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that um, has come up on a couple of episodes we've done, but I don't think we've talked about it with you, is um, the Belt and Road Initiative and the degree to which that has or hasn't actually been particularly effective at... um, creating a renminbi network that rival or a renminbi system and i think what was it like a lot of the lending is still dollarized right tracy yeah Uh, what is going on with that and how does how do you see like you know obviously the geopolitics sort of building relationships of course we've seen the emergence and growing of the formal like BRICS group of countries how does that how do some of these endeavors play into china's currency strategy in your view so the uh Belt and the Road Initiative initially started as a way for Chinese leaders, in particular Xi Jinping, to address China's domestic overcapacity problem. Hmm. Right, is after the financial during the financial crisis, China did the four trillion RMB stimulate, and then it created a lot of domestic overcapacity. Therefore, using President Xi Jinping his own word, he said, "You know, China's overcapacity problem is a problem for us, but it could be beneficial for other countries." So that was the context, that was the background. But it's in reality, is not necessarily how it was imagined. Right? You are right. A lot of the lending have been denominated in in dollar. However, 
Chinese financiers, including President Xi Jinping himself as the leader, uh, have been envisioning having BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, as a vehicle or a mechanism to broaden the use of uh, renminbi along Belt and Road Initiative countries. And they even created a sovereign funds to uh, mm. help broadening the use of renminbi. And that sovereign funds is called the Silk Road Fund. And it was launched around 2000. It, if I remember it correctly, it should be around 2014, 2015-ish, if I remember it correctly. And at one of those Belt and Road Initiative International Corporation Forum, President Xi Jinping said, I'm going to give it you know, another capital injection. And this time, the capital injection is going to be denominated, like the capital injection is going to be in renminbi. The whole purpose mm. is to broaden the use of renminbi through this initiative. And what is fascinating is once President made the announcement, the Chinese central banker at that time came out and saying that this is a great idea and we are going to use the uh, Silk Road Fund as a mechanism to facilitate the renminbi internationalization initiative. But the important part here is to remember is the is is not really internationalization. It's not that they are removing capital controls or anything like that. They are doing this through creating a relatively regional space for Chinese importers, exporters to make transactions, right? And in this particular context, it's also very important because uh, Silk Road Fund, the creation of the Silk Road Fund was using China's foreign exchange reserves managed by state administration of a foreign exchange or SAFE, which, was the, which is the foreign exchange reserve management arm of the PB, People's Bank of China. Mm. And in order to create the Silk Road Fund, the PBOC created a special entity called Buttonwood. And although capitalizing the Silk Road Fund was Buttonwood's initial mission, it then later went on to create additional investment funds, played a very important role in stabilizing China's stock market. Yeah, I remember this. I think it came up in another one of our episodes, although I cannot remember which one. Since you brought up Xi, listening to you lay out why China wants this type of diversification, it makes a lot of sense. And I think this is in many ways an underappreciated aspect of Xi Jinping and the CCP is that like they, they are good at identifying problems and vulnerabilities. It's just that sometimes they're bad at maybe identifying solutions. And sometimes I think Dan Wong, another one of our guests, pointed this out in his annual letter, and I'm probably paraphrasing here, but like sometimes the solution is more painful than the problem itself. And you could make that argument for things like housing, what happened in the for-profit education space, the tech crackdown, all of those things. What is the mechanism or the scenario in which China's attempt to diversify away from the dollar ends up harming it in some way? Like essentially, what are the risks here? I feel like they need to oh. be discussed. So let me take a step back by explaining what are the risks, what, what are the motivations for uh, China to attempt to reduce ex exposure, right? The, in addition to economic reasons, there are what I consider as very uh, important geopolitical vulnerabilities that has direct financial security implication. And I describe it as the three I's. I know that last time we talked about it, the four D's. Oh, yeah. It's, it's any great 
commenter has to have their thing. Our guest recently, Jason, comments from Reverend Howard, the three ends. Oh my goodness. So we like these things. All right, what are the three eyes? So the three eyes is under rising geopolitical tension, expose countries like China to liquidity challenge. Mm. It exposed countries like China to insecure challenge. And the, fine, the other part would, because of insecurity, because of illiquidity, China is building an alternative to, in, to insure mm. against a lot of these vulnerabilities, right? So those are the three eyes. And the mechanism for China to achieve this is to create an alternative system. It can be summarized as the split. You have settlement and payment, that's the S and P. You have liquidity, which is L. And liquidity, the whole idea of liquidity is to create international demand for the renminbi and the renminbi asset, right? And then I would be uh, creating a sort of this international international system to increase the insurance. And then the T part would be the trading, the whole idea of China being the not just the world factory, but also a very important player in global commodities market. Now, the backfire scenario would be at the T scenario. Now you have all these plumbing system, you know, the settlement, the payment, a lot of these are the plumbing. Yes, you can make the argument to say that the transaction volume on the SWIFT, uh, on the Chinese CIPS system is still very low. But the point is, it's a proof of a concept. It, the, the idea is you buy insurance, you hope that you don't need it. But in case you need it, you have it ready to go, right? And if the worst case scenario for China would be with the uh, continued supply chain diversification, you started to say, Okay, so what the implication for global currency system would be China started to build its own trading system, whereas uh, denominated in renminbi, whereas the rest of the world is trading an entirely different currency. Now, what if in that Mm. scenario you have a currency war? Mm. And for central bankers' experience, would be foreign exchange reserves are uh, one day in the central bank, but the next day could be gone. China lived through this around 2016, 2017. Within one year, foreign exchange reserves decreased from $4 trillion to uh, $3 trillion, right? So this experience is sort of very insecure from a Chinese financier's perspective. Therefore, if the entire global trading system is split into two parts, to whom is China going to export in order to accumulate all the foreign exchange reserves that back China's renminbi internationalization mm. operation? Mm. I just have one more question about the current state of things in China. We got a slew of data recently, not great, still a slump, but uh, second year in a row of declining population, I believe more deaths than births and a little bit worse than expected. This is another top demographics or another topic kind of like the dollar where just a lot of people have a lot of opinions and things to say. And I never really know how like serious. What is what do you think of as the economic implications or any implications of uh, a shrinking population? First of all, I would say that currently perhaps we are living through a um, mood swing of, of the Chinese economy because, you know, during the around 2022, before China officially exited the zero COVID policies, you know, a lot of people in the West are ante- were anticipating China's uh, rapid snapback. But uh, obviously, the economy, the, the recovery of the economy has been disappointing. 
therefore, we are now ha- becoming having this very much doomsayers mood. And demographics is one of the four Ds that we talked about. And I, I think in the short run, perhaps the challenge is even even bigger than the long-term implication. Now, the long-term Im- implication is that, well, you know, the labor premium that China benefited from has shrinked. Obviously, that's one argument that you can say, but you know, there, China is also spending a lot of money and investing in artificial intelligence, robotics, and all that. And guess what? Japan is a good example. Instead of labor, instead of re- relaxing the, uh, the the immigration policy, they use robotics, right? So, the, I, I do think the short run implication is more severe because mm. shrinking population. The reason why birth rate. Goes lower. Part of the reason is because, well, perhaps people are no longer getting married as often as uh, the, basically the family formation rate, the marriage ratio declined, and it has a severe implication for the housing market because the demand for housing decreased, and housing remain constitute about thirty percent of China's GDP. And without housing market recovery, it is very difficult for the Chinese economy to recover in the short run.、Hmm. I have just one more question, and it's not that important, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> Last time you were on the show, you gave us one of the the greatest gifts in Odd Lots history, which is knowledge of the existence of、oh, idiot、yeah. sunflower seeds, which has become one of my all time favorite companies. Like both for the business itself, but also for what it says about the development of the Chinese economy and、uh, what's happening now under Xi Jinping. Give me a, a new、um, <laughs> wormhole to go down in the Chinese currency market, or the economy, or rare earth metals. Any of those? Something I, we can I'm get up obs- for it. Something、yeah. we can get obsessed with.、Oh, that's a good、um, question. This is a good question. I was trying to look through the the Chinese economy and trying to find i like company icons that can correspond to different era. I have uh, the uh, idea the watermelon seed that is one sunflower seed. Um, but I have been struggling to find another one, and since we were talking about energy transition and、uh, potential cha- China's potential challenge to the dollar-based system, I'm going to say BYD.、Mm. It、oh, stands、yeah. for a good choice. You know, it stands for build your dream, <laughs> right? And、uh, if you look at how BYD,、uh, the rise of BYD, and to what extent it、uh, challenges a lot of、uh, foreign EV makers, it shows that. Perhaps the Chinese market is extremely competitive, and there are still reasons to be hopeful for the Chinese economy, especially for the high tech sector. However, I would offer another cautious piece here, which is if you look at BYD and who is the largest shareholders of of its publicly listed shares, you will find Central Huijin owns more than ten percent of its publicly listed shares. Yeah, it's funny you bring it up because Joe and I were actually talking about this earlier in the week. BYD shares have also fallen a lot, and it's this incredibly promising company that I think has overtaken、uh, Tesla, Tesla to become yeah to become the biggest like maker of electric vehicles, but. Investors are really down on its outlooks. I think in part because, like, the government has basically said this is a really important part of our economy, and we want to be leaders in the EV market. And so, there's a lot of pressure on them to invest, especially if one of their dominant shareholders is actually a public entity. You know, they're all sort of working together for the future development of the Chinese economy. So, that means reinvestment, capex. It doesn't necessarily mean、uh, right. dividends、Profits. and share buybacks. 
Also, maybe the dollar system is under some sort of threat. But the English system, if the leader of your domestic manufacturing is build your dreams, then uh, I think the network effects of the English language are still extremely powerful. <laughs> Very much so. Lots More is produced by Carmen Rodriguez and Dashiell Bennett with help from Moses Ondam and Kale Brooks. Our sound engineer is Blake Maples. Sage Bauman is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Odd Lots and Lots More on your favorite podcast platforms. And remember that Bloomberg subscribers can listen to all of our podcasts ad-free by connecting through Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.